record and I'm going to hit a big button and hopefully the music will start. Here we go. Welcome back to Coach Class with me, Dom Birch. This is the podcast where I get to speak to inspirational leaders and coaches from across the world. And I'm absolutely delighted to be reunited with Stuart Price. Stuart Price, FCIPD, no less, who's the Chief People Officer at Zenith Vehicles and a qualified business and executive coach. Stuart, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Oh, no, my pleasure. So let's just reverse back a little bit then. So... How did you end up in this world of people, people development? And, you know, I know you from Asda, but what was your route into where you are today? Well, uh, I started uh, at Asda when I was 16. So I was at uh, a college at the time um, and I did a number of operational roles. And I soon realized quite early on that people make or break your teams. So where you've got great people in your teams, uh, you deliver great results. Um, and where you don't, you you won't, um, and you don't have a, a strategy without people. You don't have a culture without people. You don't have any products or services uh, without people. And I've always wanted to sort of be in the centre and the thick of things um, and to influence and make you know positive change. And so for me, it was always going to be either in 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 a people role um, or in an operational role where you're in effect leading those people and creating you know, creating the culture for them to, to work in so for me it was it was it started sort of from being around 16 17 on a shop floor uh, in after working in some really great teams and then seeing some not so great teams I was going to say what what is it that you think has stood you in good stead from those days because I've interviewed a lot of you know, having worked at Asda, I've interviewed a lot of colleagues I grew up with. And, and that's how I sort of imagine it when I was at Asda. I remember talking to Steve Smith and saying there's a, there's a sort of moment in your career, and maybe a couple of moments if you start young like you did, where you really develop and grow up as a, as a person, but also as somebody in business. And then you take that with you into the next role and almost refer back to it. What are the things that really stood you in good stead? I mean, Asda was a phenomenal place. I was there for 12 years. Um, did a number of roles across um, you know, stores, regional roles, head office, um, did a bit of stint in logistics. And there were a number of things that were really um, prevalent for me. I mean, it, was a, it, was a, it was a business that had a culture of challenge and care. Um, and when I say challenge, it was quite ruthless in terms of its focus on performance, but it also really cared about its people. You know, I remember been pushed really hard to deliver. But I remember the time when my dad passed away and, you know, Asda flew me from Leeds down to the South Coast in the hospital that he was in um, to make sure that, you know, I was there at, the, at that critical moment. And, you know, it was, it was a very high challenge and high support environment. And I think retail is very structured and disciplined. Um, you know, you had to have solid business cases. You had to have really good change programs. You had to have clear return on investment. Um, and if those things weren't true, you couldn't you, you couldn't deliver change. I think the other thing with Asda, you know, was there was a relentless focus on the customer and its purpose. So, and it was it was very very simple. Um, and I think retail generally is great at this. You know, it's a very down-to-earth sector. It's grounded. Um, and, and on that basis, I think you know, it does keep things really simple. And in a world where everything's becoming more complex, I think, you know, that's a really good discipline 
uh, to have. And then I think finally, as they they truly valued colleagues um, at all levels. There wasn't there wasn't a sense of hierarchy, and that's something I've taken into every business that I've been. You know, it didn't matter what level you were at. If you were you know, a check operator, a cleaner, it didn't matter. Your voice and contribution was was valued and the role you played was appreciated and, and respected. And therefore, it gave you real confidence at quite a young age to have an opinion and a, and a point of view. And I think that's something that I've always, I've always had since I was a child, but as a really nurtured um, mm. and, and, you know, having that embedded in for 12 years uh, was, you know, was just a great training ground. Uh, yeah, I think that's really interesting because I remember when I left uni and my first role was, um, I mean, I did a little sort of summer intern stint down in London at an ad agency and then managed to get a job at Green Flag over in Pudsey. And I remember thinking then that, you know, I did have a point of view and I did have an opinion. It might have been a naive one, but I wanted the ability to express it. And I kind of felt that was a little bit dampened down at Green Flag. And then at Direct Line, it was sort of, okay, I got a manager role, so I was able to do that a bit more. But I remember coming to Asda and it was kind of like, my view is as valuable, or sorry, valid as somebody else's view, as long as it's backed up with some sort of evidence. And the thing that was always evidence at Asda was, well, what did a customer think? Yeah. And what does a real person say? And have you been on the shop floor or or heard that firsthand? And then you really were taken seriously. And that sense of, I don't know, involvement and respect almost actually from people. And you could stop the chief exec and have a conversation with them in the canteen or wander around to their desk. There was a real sense of openness. Now, also, I used to get that wrong occasionally because I'd watch somebody like Nick Agarwal do it and he did it in his sleep. And then I would mimic him really badly and be really clunky and make a, you know, make a bit of a prat of myself. What yeah, the they things... were the learning opportunities. Yeah, they, I were. Used to say, yeah. there were, there were a few times where I got a bit ahead of my headlights and, uh, you know, you have a good idea one week and then the next week you think, oh, this is another great idea and it doesn't quite pan out. If you... And I remember some of the conversations with leaders where they were like, just, just Chill your jets a bit, yeah, yeah. Now. But <laughs> it was, you know, those were the learning moments. But I'd much rather work in an environment where you know, people feel they can have a view, um, and you've got to temper that rather than you're having to drag, you know, people forward. I did a stint in uh, in in human healthcare when I was at, at Virgin, working um, running NHS community uh, healthcare services, and that was probably the stark opposite. Um, you know, the NHS, in my experience, um, was, you know, quite hierarchical and quite structured. And, and the people, the nurses on the front line didn't feel that they, they had the right to that voice. And one of the things I loved about that, that role at, at Virgin was, was giving healthcare workers who absolutely delivered the frontline care a voice. Um, and taking what I'd learned at Asda and that value into, into a healthcare environment was, was culturally game changing, um, and ultimately, you know, we delivered healthcare outcomes that were ahead of, you know, the NHS averages. Colleague engagement that was ahead of the NHS averages, and so, you know, taking a retail culture and concept into a healthcare environment just shows the power um, that 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 culture had out there, and how it, you know, it can be replicated in all different industries. So starting out as a, you know, on the shop floor at Asda at 16 and then getting to be chief operating officer of Virgin Care. I mean, that's that journey. Did you sort of pinch yourself a little bit? Did you did you ever have that, you know, and I, and I almost don't want to use that kind of inferiority complex. But, you know, did you ever have that moment of like, blimey, 
am I really doing this? Or, or did you have a real sense of vision, purpose, you know, confidence that it was like, no, no, I, I'm, I should be here. No, I never had the latter. I think, <laughs> um, I mean, I had, I had my probably my biggest crisis of confidence as a, as an exec leader was probably when I was at cost cutter, cause it was my first, my first role. Um, and I was sat around, um, a table. I was the youngest, uh, the youngest member of the exec team. And I was surrounded by some really experienced, brilliant leaders, you know, the CEO, the trading director, the marketing director, the retailer, they were just phenomenal. And I sort of sat there going, why the hell am I here? Um, and I did feel like, uh, yeah, I, I shouldn't have been there. But fortunately, I worked for an incredible CEO who soon knocked that uh, out of me. And I think the key lesson that I learned then was stop looking at what everybody else does that you don't and look at what you do that they don't mm. and really learn what your superpowers are um, and focus on your strengths because that's what you bring um, to the party. And, you know, my strength was leading teams, creating vision, driving change, making things happen. I wasn't the strongest financier in the room. I wasn't the strongest marketeer, but then I didn't need to be. So I think that was probably my big first sort of exact crisis of confidence. And then when I went to Virgin, I went in as chief people officer and I did that role for a couple of years. Um, and then the chief operating officer was going on maternity leave. Um, and as the CPO, I was like, oh, we haven't got any succession. We've got no solution. And the CEO was sat there chuckling to say, well, you can do it. And I, was like, I was laughing, thinking I've never run a medical or clinical service uh, in my in my life and I've only been in this sector for two years and you think I can run the whole operation um, and I've always I've never had a career plan I've never said I want to get to this role or I want to be in this business or I want to earn this money I've never had a plan I've always just worked for amazing people um, fallen in love with strategies that I think are really interesting um, and gone to places where I think I can make a difference. And those things were true. And the CEO had confidence in me and that gave me confidence in myself. And that's what ultimately meant I said yes. Um, and it was one of the best jobs I, I ever did. You know, that two and a half year period running seven and a half thousand colleagues of which the vast majority were qualified clinicians, nurses, doctors, consultants was one of the proudest, proudest roles I've ever done. Mm, that's a great story and an and, and amazing leadership for somebody to invest that confidence. So Steve Smith was the equivalent for me at Asda. I remember when he promoted me to do a role that I thought, well, I can't do that. And it was like running the only part of marketing that was meant to make money and a chunk of money as well, like, you know, millions and millions of pounds. And in my my praise of running up to that job change had been, Dom is the least commercial person in marketing and we need to embrace him, <laughs> right? Because we need to embrace difference. It was all about the diversity of thinking back then, not just all these other things, right? So I was sort of like left really confused. I remember Steve just sort of putting his arm around me on that day and he'd had to let a load of people go. So he had had a really bad day. And it was one of those classic lessons in, in, in empathy because I started the conversation with Steve and I really wanted to say, I don't know how to do this job. But I started off by saying, how are you? Because today must have been really tough. And it was one of the toughest days in his career because, you know, those days were horrible when they had to march people out of the building. And then I said, I don't know if I can do this job you've given me. And he just gave me those words of wisdom that I needed here, which was, if in six weeks it's not for you, put your hand up and I will find you something else. 
Now, he knew deep down that I would do it and I would get through that dip and somehow I'd find the resilience and somehow I'd figure it out and I'd use the skills I did have to, to you know, make a, a run of it, if nothing else. And it was just such an important lesson. I was far more capable than I had ever given myself credit. But what I needed, I needed somebody to tell me and to back me and to invest some confidence. And I think that's probably a consistent theme throughout most people's careers who 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 are grounded. <laughs> um, and I think it's a really important one. I mean, if I look back at every job I ever did, my first move from doors to out the house, I think I was about 23. Mm. Um, I think I was probably one of the youngest people in the people function. And it was my old RPM, the regional people manager that I'd worked with that said he'd be really he'd be really good in here, but I never thought I could be. Um, and then similarly, I got asked to go and do the industrial relations gig in in logistics. I would never have thought I was capable of of, of kind of doing that. And even the job I'm in now, you know, <laughs> at Zenith, it's very uh, it's very similar to things I've done before. Um, but the, you know, the 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 opportunity for change here is, is just great, and I, I'm I'm loving it. So let's talk a little bit about if you don't mind being a qualified business and exec coach. So what is it you find from having those skills that, you know, supplement what you've learned being a people manager, being the leader of people, having all that strategic stuff around the boardroom? What is it in that coaching field that you've, I don't know, that, that's added to your sort of backpack of things? And, and how does that come out in, in every day as well as when you're coaching people? Well, I've probably got quite a few sort of leadership top tips in my year that I've gathered over the years. But I think two of them, um, one would be you know, self-awareness is key. Um, you know, know what you're good at, know what you're not, and then surround yourself with people that are you know, better than you <laughs> um, is, is kind of number one. And then I think the second one is that vulnerability builds trust. Um, and if you can show you know, your vulnerability to people, they will, you know, human spirit is that they'll help you to be better um, and you know, decent people will lean in and, and, and help you. And I think when I did my coaching um, course, I went into it thinking, I'm going to learn some great theory about coaching um, and I can take this back into the business and talk about being an exec coach. But actually the principle of the program was in order for you to coach others, you absolutely need to understand you. And so it was like a psychological deconstruction of yourself um, where I knew that there were certain things about me. Uh, for example, I'm an overhelper. Um, and I knew that about myself, but I never knew where it came from. Um, and and so what this program did or my, my training was was really get, got me to connect with why 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 do I do that? not just the fact that I do it and how it manifests itself, but to go much, much deeper. Um, and so what came out of the program for me was a much deeper, richer level of self-awareness. Um, and, it, you know, this stuff goes back to your childhood and uh, you know, parental relationships and school relationships and all those sorts of things. So it was quite deep yeah. um, and, and meaningful. But what it means is that I know where it comes from. I know why it's there. I can't change it. Um, but I know when it triggers, I know when it shows up um, and I can manage it better um, in the moment. And and because I know that about myself, I just talk really openly about it. Um, and I think that vulnerability means that people kind of kind of want to follow you um, because you're not 
you know, you're not trying to be anything other than your yourself. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you sort of talk about authentic self, and and it's one of those phrases, and it? it gets banded around. But actually, really, really understanding who you are, why you are, and and those triggers. I think. I mean, it was similar but different. When I was on the barefoot course, I think the thing that I had to unlearn actually was in my eagerness to solve and help and allow people to see through a problem, you know, and overcome it, I would be coming up with ideas rather than listening and stopping and providing space and then listening some more. And what somebody observed when I was in one of these sort of triad coaching things, you know, somebody off camera listening in and watching, was as soon as I relaxed and sat back and just visibly calmed the space the level of thinking that the coach he did just went to a different level. And so, you know, even to the point of having that written down on a bit of post-it note that just says, be still, and it's not there anymore because the post-it note's, you know, long dog-eared. But I try to apply that in every single conversation I have, whether it's at home or, you know, in a meeting, particularly when you can feel your emotions coming up and it's like, oh, I can feel that. The sort of, I don't know, the eagerness to go, oh, I know the answer, I know the answer, I know the answer. And I'm so busy waiting for a pause in conversation that I'm not really observing what aren't they saying. You know, where's their behavior coming from and being curious? Yeah, I don't know about you, but I think that's why I love spending time with introverts. Mm. Um, you know, I married an introvert. I I love having introverts in my team because they do just bring that level of calm and internal thinking that because otherwise I think when you're in a room with loads of extroverts you're just sort of bouncing off each other yeah. and you're right you never actually calm and do that real deep reflective thought um, and thinking whereas you know when I'm when I'm with people that are much quieter and say less you sort of start to mirror the behavior don't you and mirror the mirror what they're doing and then all of a sudden you connect at a much deeper level and a much deeper level of thought so I, I completely relate to that. So somebody who clearly loves being with people, managing people, getting the best out of other people and, and obviously understands yourself. The future is looking really, I mean, it's one of those, it's exciting. If your glass is half full, it's terrible. But, you know, we've got all of this development in technology and AI that is going to be one of those kind of revolutionary moments in the last hundred years, if not, you know, before where things are going to change. And how is that sort of showing up? How do you have to manage that through a business that is, you know, tech savvy, that's in a, you know, really high paced competitive environment, all those kind of things. And yet, you know, blending, I guess, the best that people can bring and the not being blindsided by that technology is going to help simplify processes or remove the need for repetitive, you know, things that could be done by a a clever chat GPT model or whatever. <laughs> how's that? Uh, how's that sort of playing out for you as a as a senior leader in a in a business? I mean, I think the key word that you used in there is blend, um, and so everyone gets really excited by the new shiny thing, um, which you know this is, and it does have a huge role to play. You know, there are absolutely transactional elements of serving a customer that can be automated um, and there are things that we're doing in our business now around you know digital apps self-service um, robotics chat GP, all of that stuff plays a really really key role but we are innately you know very deeply social creatures as human beings and you know for me there will always be a role 
uh, for the person. And there's always a stage in that customer journey where somebody just needs to talk to somebody, whether that's a vulnerable customer that, you know, can't pay their, you know, that pay their bill. Um, they don't want to talk to a robot, actually. They want to talk to a person. They want empathy and they want human connectivity. And I think, you know, for me, um, we absolutely have to embrace change and uh, and embed new technological ways of working, but not at the expense of, of humanity um, and, and what it means to be human. And one of the big phrases that I, you know, banded around at the moment, you know, the future of work is human. And I think it is. Um, and that's why, you know, I love what I do and I will continue to do it because um, technology is important. But, you know, human human connectivity is you know, essential for me. So, Stuart, tell me about one of the things that since you've been at Zenith that you're most proud of. I think the work that we're doing on diversity and inclusion, the reason being is that we're actually measuring impact. So we're not just talking about what we're doing on inclusion, but we're measuring the impact through our diversity data. Um, and so an example, when I when I arrived, I mean, the automotive sector is pretty well known for being quite male dominated across the leadership board and the next level down, the, the director population. And there was about 30 people in that cohort and we had one female, one female leader. And now we have um, over 45% um, in that population are, are women. Wow. And for me, not only is that an amazing stat, but it's so personal because when I was growing up at Asda, um, in the people function, it was predominantly women in the senior leadership position. So I worked with some incredible women, um, just phenomenal women. Um, people like you know, Emma Fox was a, a big um, advocate of the women in leadership agenda at, at Asda. Um, I worked for Amanda Cox. Many people you've had on your on your Coach Class podcast. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and I just learned from them so much, um, and the value that they bring to business and teams. And um, our business is a better business as a result of it. And so, yeah, that's probably one of my biggest uh, biggest achievements. That's amazing, and, and in actually quite a short short time frame as well to to change that diversity mix. And you know, we were talking a bit earlier about you know when I was at ASDA and it was like diversity of thinking because ASDA was pretty diverse in many ways. You know, but that sense of when you have different people with different experiences, with different lived experiences, then that is going to shape and make the answer better, more robust. You know, it just it just makes companies better it does and 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 it is as simple as that dom everybody overcomplicates it (laughs) but it is absolutely as simple as you just described it um and we were fortunate um to be able to do it because we were a growing you know we're a growing business we're transforming got lots of stuff happening so that creates opportunities which we've been able to give to women and, and and attract some really great women what, what's next? And I don't mean that in the sense of your colleagues are listening and always oh, applying for other roles. But, you know, <laughs> what, what, what keeps you and you can say, tell me if you want, but what, what sort of keeps you getting out of bed? What's the things that still sort of reignites your passion that I don't know, is beckoning you over the horizon and, and or, or that you're moving towards? You can kind of see it and go, I wanna, I'm going there. I'm going to do more of that. I mean, there's plenty to do here. So I'm having an absolute great time. We've just diversified our business recently into into a number of different divisions. 
we've got loads of uh, work that we're doing on how we're organized and set up to service the customer. We've got major tech transformation. We're doing some huge work on uh, on cultural evolution. It's a brilliant business with a great culture, but we need to kind of bring it up into uh, into into the kind of modern times. So we're doing some really interesting stuff around well-being and, and diversity and inclusion. So when I came here, um, I had... I've had quite a, a few roles over the last eight years and felt a bit choppy. Mm. So one of the things for me coming uh, to, to Zenith was I want to put some roots down here for at least sort of five years. Um, and our people promise is a five year is a five year plan. And so I want to see, I genuinely want to see that through. Um, and this is you know a business with a great team that I'm you know I want to be definitely want to be part of. But I think if I look further forward, one of the things that I've never had a plan, I've never had a career <laughs> plan. So I, I, I go, there's a few ticks that have to be in place for me. The first one is I have to believe in the strategy and what, where the business is trying to go. I have to like and respect the people I work with and for. I have to believe that I've got some skills that can help that organization to, to change. Um, so there's got to be a sort of a high change uh, agenda and I need to be able to feel I can add value. Um, and those are the things that really guide me. Um, and so I'm kind of open to, to anything really. I mean, I never thought I'd work in healthcare, um, having done 18 years in food retail. I did a short stint in veterinary, uh, healthcare for a year during COVID and now I'm in automotive. So I kind of, I don't, I just go where I'm interested, you know, where I'm interested, and where I can learn and, and make a difference. And and so, who knows? Uh, I guess I do. I I do flip between people and operations, and I enjoy that because you get sort of four or five years of real strategic thinking, but baked in some operational reality. And then you go back into sort of operations, and then you sort of you know leading large teams. Um, and working really closely with customers, which I, you know, which I love. So I, I don't know. I might, I might go into another operations role in the future, um, and uh, and see how it goes. And then I think one day I might do some consulting work, and um, if anyone will have me, uh, and uh, <laughs> and uh, and see how it goes. But yeah, I, I just genuinely don't really have a plan, which sounds really, um, really poor when you say it out loud, but. It's it's a strategy that I think worked reasonably well for me. Yeah, yeah. I think so, I think not having a plan is a plan, and you know, having done what retail, healthcare, vets, and cars, maybe maybe next steps the moon, right? Maybe it's maybe <laughs> you're going to go and work for Elon and and on space SpaceX or something. But um, listen, if people will come to me as a consultant, they are definitely going to come to you, Stuart. So don't <laughs> don't you worry about that. I'm sure there'll be lots of people banging down the door. Well, listen, we've run out of time, but it's been really really great catching up with you. Normally, you and I bump into each other downstairs in the coffee shop when I'm chatting to my mate, Tony, and, and, and not done that for a while. But um, I look forward to doing that again soon. But um, in the meantime, Stuart Price, who is the Chief People Officer at Zenith, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Thank you. Take care.